Welcome back to True Crime Trine, the podcast where the planets align. Three friends talk about true crime, astrology, and any other weird bullshit we can fit into this podcast. I am Hannah with Meredith and Sarah. Sarah is still a ghost. <laughs> yes, yeah, still, still away. Far, far away. I would like to say that I'm hoping that due to Sarah's location over in the northeast corner of the United States that she is advertising our podcast because... Oh, she better be. We're lacking listeners in that area, and we only have 20 more states before we have the full set. So, Sarah? Sarah? Hopefully you took some of your stickers. You probably did not, but that's okay. <laughs> Welcome to episode 17. Before I get into my story today, we have to do a little correction corner uh, where we tell you all the stuff we fucked up in the past and how we're sorry and this is what we meant. <laughs> I am going to go back to my um, Beth Wetlawfer episode and a very astute Canadian listener sent me a text and was like, all of Canada's government's not conservative, just Ontario's is. I was meaning to just talk about the province itself, but I kept saying, Canada's this and Canada's that. And she's like, Canada's not this or that. <laughs> Sorry, Canada. <laughs> Sorry, Canada. I, uh, whoops. I was just excited. We love you, Canada. So, sorry. I also have a go back to episode 15 for those of you that opted to listen to the major bummer of a story. My mom texted me, and it is Brushy Mountain Penitentiary, not Bushy Mountain Penitentiary. <laughs> so thanks for that, thanks. Mom. Thanks, Mom. My cousin Steven sent me a message, and evidently Brushy Mountain is kind of a tourist destination, and it even has a distillery. So the next time Ooh. I am visiting in Tennessee, uh, my lovely cousins, the drinks will be on me. Ah, so nice. So good to be a fan. Yes. <laughs> Today, I am bringing you a Minnesota murder. Minnesota. Especially because two of the three of your hosts are going to be there next week. Oh. Which will be the past when you listen to this episode. But So we'll both be visiting Minneapolis, Minnesota at the same time. So I was like, why not do a true crime story about how creepy Minneapolis could be? Why not? That sounds great. Is Sarah meeting you there? Sarah's meeting Kirk there okay. and stuff, and I'm going to meet up with them probably once or twice at least. Oh, that'll be fun. But we are there at the same time. And I'll see my parents and whatever. I'm a little, like, I bought these tickets when, like, um, things were looking better COVID-wise. <laughs> and now, like, they're just reinstating the mask mandate and stuff here. And I was like, cool. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> Love it. But it should be fine. It should be okay. Yeah. So, Minnesota murder. Woo! I think this is our first Minnesota murder. I think so. I did a little search. They don't have a ton of murder from my very brief search. But um, this one is the Weepy Voiced Killer. Ooh. So named because 
A mysterious man kept leaving anonymous phone calls to the Twin Cities police in the early 1980s, saying things like, God damn, will you find me? I can't stop myself. I keep killing somebody. Ooh. And let's just say, we know I'm not a very good voice actor. I'm not even going to try on these. <laughs> but there will be a link on the website for the YouTube that has a recording of these calls, and you should listen to that because it's eerie. Ew. It's super weird. And he's like, so, oh my God, I can't stop killing. He's like real sad about it. But is he though? I don't know. I don't know (laughs) what his deal is to be sure. But okay. Hence the weepy voice killer, Paul Michael Stefani. So our childhood session is going to be super brief. Okay. Uh, Paul was born on September 8, 1944 in Austin, Minnesota. Uh, His mother remarried when he was three years old, so I don't have any information at all about his biological father. Okay. Uh, Paul claimed that his stepfather was sometimes abusive to the kids and would smack him around or push them down the stairs if they got in his way. Okay. Which seems like a big, big escalation, to be (laughs) honest. Uh, (laughs) um, But anyway. No, pardon me. Excuse me. Coming through. Nope. Just kick him down the stairs. You're in my way. If that happened. This is Paul's story. We gotta take all murderer stories with a grain of salt. True. He did graduate high school. Good for him. Mm -hmm. And he moved to Minneapolis, St. Paul, where he bounced around between jobs a lot. Uh, At some point, he got married and had a daughter, but then he got divorced and abandoned his wife and child. Probably for the best. Yeah, especially if he's a murderer. Usually this is bad to abandon your whole family, but they might have gotten off better without him. Yeah, I think so. So, on New Year's Day, 1981, going back to older murders for me, no more Googling. (laughs) New Year's Day, 1981, at 3 a.m., Paul made his first call to 911. Uh, To the operator on the other end, this man sounded distraught. And he directed them to send an ambulance to the Malberg Manufacturing Company and Machine Shop, telling them that there's a girl hurt there. Uh Uh-oh. First responders uh, arrived and found 20-year-old Karen Potak, who was a college student, uh, naked in a snowbank. This is January in in Minnesota. Yeah, so cold as fuck. Uh, Karen had been beaten so badly that a part of her brain was exposed no i know i don't like that part at all the brain needs to stay behind its little like Mm -hmm. bone cage it's got a cage so for a reason y'all somehow karen survived this attack so wow good girl but she remembered nothing about her attacker understandably brain got a little wobbly yeah i also just realized that this is um, a minnesota story where my family lives now the killer's name is also my dad's and my brother's name, and Karen is my mom's name. Oh, <laughs> It's a family affair. Yeah. It's a little weird. No Hannah's, though. Well, that's good. All right, so six months go by, June 3rd, 1981. The body of a young woman was discovered by a group of teenagers near a construction site in St. Paul. She had been stabbed 61 times in the chest, stomach, and inner thighs. Oh. 
Uh, a lot of anger. Mm-hmm. Or impotence, if criminal minds has taught us anything. I think it has. <laughs> I think it has. Yeah. The weapon was determined to be an ice pick, which St. Paul Police Department Sergeant Joe Corcoran commented on, saying, it's very unusual to use an ice pick to kill somebody. And I'm also going to say, it's probably unusual to carry around an ice pick in June. Yeah. But, sure. Unless he's making margaritas with a block of ice? (laughs) With the boys. (laughs) Uh, well, no, he did something else. Should have made margaritas with the boys. Yeah. This woman was dead. Just to clarify, Karen didn't die and part of her brain was exposed, so sometimes you gotta clarify, but... This woman was identified as 18-year-old Kimberly Compton, and in the very worst turn of events, she had just moved to St. Paul that very day. Oh. What a fucking welcome. Yeah, you're like, new city, new fresh start. 18 years old, like, you know, whatever. And then, yeah. The world is your oyster, and then somehow you run into this guy. Oh, son of a bitch. Uh, So there weren't many clues at the crime scene, but two days later, the police received an anonymous phone call saying, quote, I don't know why I had to stab her. I'm so upset about it. End quote. Well, okay. How do you think Kimberly felt? Yeah. Pretty mad, bruh. Mm Mm-hmm. So the police believe that this phone call was the real deal, as the caller specifically mentioned that he had stabbed somebody with an ice pick which was a detail that they had not released to the media. Okay. And then he called back a few days later to whine a little bit more, saying, Don't talk, just listen. I'm sorry of what I did to Compton. I couldn't help it. I can't think of getting locked up. If I get locked up, I'll kill myself. I'll try not to kill anybody else. Try being the operative word there. Okay. Do more than try, please. This call was traced to a payphone at a bus depot. But by the time the police arrived at the scene, Paul was gone. He called a couple days later to apologize for killing Kimberly and saying that he was going to turn himself in. He did not. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Yeah, then he called another few days later to hopefully correct some details that the newspapers had gotten wrong. Well. Chatty Kathy. That's so nice, Larissa. I know, she's like, wait, this has to be right, though. (laughs) Get the details right or nothing. Probably should have been calling the newspaper, but whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Anywho, with little else to go on, the police released a portion of his phone calls to the media, as it was an extremely distinctive call and voice, and so police hoped that someone would recognize the man, but nothing came of it. That's too bad. Yeah, because we have some more murders. Hmm. So, continuing the trend of children finding bodies, on August 6, 1982, a paperboy came across a woman's body on the banks of the Mississippi River. I, this is going to make me sound like an idiot, but I just learned when my parents moved to Minneapolis that the Min- Mississippi River, like, starts up there. <laughs> That's the river? Oh, yeah. Okay. Did you not pay attention in geography I don't class? think we did geography at my school, to be honest. All right. It's a big river. It spans a long distance. It do. I'm going to see it soon. So this woman was identified as Barbara Simons, a 40-year-old nurse 
who had been beaten and stabbed over 100 times by something like an ice pick or a Phillips head screwdriver. Okay. And then to further connect Barbara Simon's murder to Kimberly Compton, the police received another phone call <sighs> saying, quote, I'm sorry I killed that girl. I stabbed her 40 times. Kimberly Compton was the first one over in St. Paul. I killed more people. I'll never make it to heaven. End quote. No, you, you won't. You won't. No. Thank you. You're, you're right on that one, sir. We concur. Y- you won't. Yeah. As the police officer in the other line's like, yeah, no, you're not getting to heaven. That's for goddamn sure. Anywho, once again, plug for the website. You need to go listen to his whiny little voice for yourself. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. And then to tie in with a, a little pre-recording chit-chat and into what I think is my fourth rewatch of Criminal Minds in one year, <laughs> uh, the police reached out to the FBI. Okay. And profiler Kimberly Masnick listened to the calls and described the killer as going into a juvenile state. He's crying out. This is somebody who who's wanting to play a cat and mouse game. I think I've heard that on Criminal Minds. <laughs> I have too. I mean, I'm not the profiler, but like, to me, it seems less like a cat and mouse game and more just like, this guy's fucked up. Yeah, he's got some definite issues. The police were able to reconstruct Barbara's last night, and they went to the Hexagon Bar in Minneapolis. Uh, They talked to several witnesses who saw Barbara talking to an unidentified white man. And before she left with him, Barbara told a waitress, I hope this guy's okay because I just need a ride home. Mm. Guy, not not okay. And this was before Uber. Not that Uber's 100% safe, but like, couldn't she get a taxi or something? Like, I don't know. As someone who's never gotten a taxi in their life, I don't know how to go about that. But in the 80s... You'd probably know better. Well, the bartender should have known, because don't they, like, have to call cabs for patrons that have had a little too much to drink, or, you know. That's true. I don't know. Uh, Uh, Maybe they were just happy she found a ride, and she wasn't driving herself. Yeah. Hindsight, 2020, and terrible. At the very least, though, several witnesses did see his face. Okay. The bartenders and the waitress were shown a series of mugshots, and they identified Paul Michael Stefani. Oh, so they had his mugshot. Yeah, I'm not sure from what, but I don't know. He was just kind of dicking around, jumping from job to job, probably not living his best life, so. Yeah. The police set up a surveillance team on Paul, but somehow they lost track of him when he left his apartment on August 21st, 1982, so about three weeks later, two, three weeks later. Okay. Later that day, Paul approached Denise Williams, offering her $100 to have some fun. Uh, I thought prostitution worked the other way around. (laughs) No, sorry. Nope. (laughs) Yeah, because this next sentence is going to make you feel real sad. No. Denise was 19 and had been a sex worker since she was 13. Oh, no. Uh, She agreed. Even though he would only pay her $40 up front, promising the remaining 60 when the sex act was complete, which I would say get it all up front. Yeah, cash up front. Cash up front or nothing, bruh. Uh, according to a court document, Paul brought Denise back to his apartment to do the deed, and somehow, despite the apartment being under police surveillance a few hours ago, no one noticed. 
like, was it shift change or like, did somebody fall asleep during the stakeout or? Or they might have noticed he left and went to try to go find him. And so they abandoned post? I don't know. Like, <sighs> there's not as much information about this crime as there are some of the bigger hitters. So I'm not exactly sure what they were doing and what the 1982 police surveillance unit was like, but I'm giving them a D minus. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I guess they tried. (laughs) That's where the F part comes in. So afterwards, Paul offered to drive Denise back to downtown Minneapolis. She quickly regretted taking him up on his offer because during the entire drive, Paul took weird back routes and talked all about his sexual fantasies. And Denise said that she was getting the creeps. So they did the deed. Mm -hmm. And she could have just walked away after that. I guess, but I guess she could have got in a cab as well. But I don't think he was probably more like suburby than the downtown stretch where Denise was working. So he's basically offering to take her, give her a drive back to where he picked her up from. Okay. So once downtown near Hennepin Avenue, Paul stopped the car. I just put in that Hennepin Avenue just in case I see it while I'm on my trip. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You'll have to take a picture of the street sign. <laughs> I know. Paul stopped the car. But instead of letting Denise out, Paul told her, ask grass or gas, no one rides for free. Which is ridiculous, because they already had ass. Yeah. So, we already did this agreement, Paul. What, so she's supposed to give him 20 bucks back out of the 100 he gave her? No idea. Okay. Denise tried to get out, but Paul started stabbing her in the stomach with a Phillips screwdriver. Mm. So, Denise fought back hard good girl kicking and scratching and biting at one point denise grabbed a bottle from the floor of the car and hit paul on the head with it she was aiming for his eye which is where i always think you should aim gouge mm-hmm. yeah gouge and this was a glass bottle so it shattered and it cut paul's cheek head and hand but undeterred paul continued to stab her while screaming that denise was just like the rest of the broads okay yeah, because you asked for something stupid. <laughs> and you already got, like, the sex out of the way. Right? Like, what more do you want from this person? I don't think she had any grass. Jesus. Uh, Denise was able to open the passenger door and roll out onto the road. But Paul followed her and continued stabbing her, even as she yelled, I'm dying, I'm dying. Aww. But extremely luckily for Denise, her screams were heard by Douglas Panning, who ran over to help. Oh, good. So Douglas saw Paul stab Denise with the screwdriver five or six times and recalls the thud sound that it made when it hit bone, which I did not even think about until Doug said that. Oh. Oh my god, and Doug's my uncle's name. It's a family affair. Ugh. Douglas grabbed Paul by the arm and tried to pull him off, but Paul jumped up and tried to stab Douglas, so Douglas ran home, called the police while Paul got in his car and drove away. Okay. But it did deter him from it did. continuing he did not. the attack on mm-hmm. Denise. Okay. So good job, Doug, for hearing something and doing something. Mm-hmm. And actually calling the police. So uh, due to her profession, Denise had already had some run-ins with the police, and there was a warrant out for her arrest as well for something called aggra- aggravated forgery. 
When the police came, she lied at first and told them that her name was Mary Gross and that she had been hitchhiking to a party when Paul picked her up. A few days later, Denise told them the truth, but then Paul's lawyer would eventually use all of this against her in an attempt to attack her credibility as a witness. He stabbed her! I know! Whose credibility are we worried about here? It was the early 80s, though, so... Yeah, Sex it doesn't workers matter. were kind of more left to people. But still, like, he physically, like, stabbed her to the bone. And Ugh. someone saw him. So there's a witness to it as well. So you're not just dependent on Denise. So why do we drag Denise through the mud? Yeah. She already has been stabbed a bunch of times. Uh, okay. Leave Denise alone. Seriously, she's already experienced enough trauma. So much. Ugh. At the hospital, the staff determined that Denise had about 15 puncture wounds in her chest and abdomen. Uh, One wound punctured her lung and another stab punctured her liver. But she survived and went on to be the main witness in Paul's trial. Good. And how did the police catch Paul Michael Stefani? How? He called them. Oh, yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not them specifically, but he called 911 saying... I need an ambulance. I'm all cut up. I got beat up and I'm bleeding. Oh, he got from cut the glass up. bottle. Oh yeah, well he deserved that shit. You'll see in his like intake photos a big bandage on his cheek from when she she got him good. Well, good for her. What a uh, what a dick. What an idiot. <sighs> so the police went to interview him, and Paul claimed that he had been the victim of a robbery. However, when Paul was presented with the weepy voice killer case file uh, with some of the crime scene photographs, Detective Don Brown of the Minneapolis Police Department said, quote, Stefani got up from his seat and said, you're not going to pin those on me. And his voice immediately changed. He went to a high pitch. Right away, it struck me as the voice that I heard in the recordings. And hopefully they had that recording for oh, yeah. comparison. <laughs> So, Paul was convicted of the murder of Barbara Simons and the attempted murder of Denise Williams and was sentenced to 58 years in prison. Seems low. Yeah, but we've heard of other we've heard people of way that less. have gotten much less than that. What about um, the attempted murder of Karen? So, I quote from Tom Foley from the Ramsey County Attorney's Office, who said that, We believe that Paul Stefani had killed Kimberly Compton and assaulted Karen Potak, but we didn't have the evidence. Okay. And Paul's ex-wife, Paul's sister, and a woman who had lived with him at one point testified in court that that hysterical voice heard in all the phone calls was the voice of Paul Stefani. Because they could, you know, get that hammered out, you could link him to Kimberly for sure. Yeah, because he used her name in one of the, or her last name in one of the recordings. However, this wasn't enough. The defense was able to argue that this is not sufficient ID as the hysterical crying that was going on distorted the voice. So, fine. Okay. In 1997, Paul was diagnosed with skin cancer and told that he had less than a year to live. So sad for you, not really. Yeah, let me shed a tiny tear. Mm -mm. That's just me sweating. (sighs) I know, it's hot up in here too. It's warm. (laughs) I don't want to turn the air on too much, so it doesn't make... I'm right underneath a vent, so... (laughs) Anyway, after getting this information, Paul decided to contact the police, and he admitted to assaulting Kimberly Potak and killing Kimberly Compton. 
He also admitted to drowning a woman in her bathtub, but claimed that he didn't remember anything about that woman. So police found a case from 1982 where Kathleen Greening, who was a 33-year-old school teacher, had been found dead in her bathtub. Paul was able to confirm that Kathleen had been his victim, as he had knowledge of Kathleen's apartment, and a Paul S. was found written in her address book. Okay. But Kathleen's death, if he had not called to confess, Kathleen's death was never linked to Paul, as it was a very different MO, and he didn't call the police to cry about it afterward. Yeah. And it sounded like they knew each other. Probably a bit bit more, yeah. Yeah, to have him in her address book, at least. Yeah. After making these additional confessions, Paul spoke to the Star Tribune in December 1997 and had some more of the same to say, quote, Since I've been locked down the last 15 years, I've wondered how all this could happen. And all I can say is I'm sick and I'm sorry. Sorry means anything after 15 years. No, it doesn't. No, again, no. Just stop it, Paul. But you are sick. Yeah, not, you're sick. It's not the cancer, though. Yeah. He died June 12, 1998, at the age of 53 at the Oak Park Heights Prison. So he did, you know, spend the rest of his life in prison, at the very least. Bye. Yeah. Good riddance. Taking out the trash. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, So Paul never offered any motivation for his murders. However, Detective Brown found out more about Paul's personal life than I was able to. And so apparently Paul had been dating a woman from Syria who had to break off the relationship and return to Syria for an arranged marriage. And Detective Brown says, This upset Stefani very much. When Stefani was attacking his victims, I believe he was attacking his former girlfriend because he felt so betrayed by what she did to him. Which is, once again, what she did to him. She's going to an arranged marriage. <laughs> How is that? Yeah. She's uh, mm, a very warped sense of um, victimhood. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's what triggered his violence, but he had some mental issues guiding his violence. You don't just do this. No. Mm-mm. So as to why he made anonymous calls to the police um, after the murders, some experts believe that Paul's religious upbringing may have made him experience some feelings of guilt and want to confess. Uh, FBI Special Agent Larry Brubaker says that was part of his profile, that if I come forward and say I did this and I was to confess to this, that I would be absolved from this event. However... Psychiatrist Park Dietz theorizes, quote, It's an unusual thing for serial violent offenders to communicate with law enforcement during their offenses. Some of them are doing it to taunt police. Some of them do it so they can get more credit. Mm-hmm. In bold, what I don't take it to mean ever is a desire to be caught. I don't think people capable of serial homicides feel enough guilt. I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like he wanted more recognition from it. I feel like he did, especially the part about calling them about the mistakes in the newspaper. Yeah. I don't really read it as a taunt, per Mm-mm. se. And if you listen to the recordings, he's very weepy and distraught, which, fine, yes, you did kill someone, but... It's almost like the realization of what happened kind of set in and set off his emotional response. Yeah, because I don't think most serial murders maybe feel that much. 
empathy. Weirdness, empathy, like afterwards. Mm-hmm. But he didn't feel weird enough to stop, so he did it again. Well, he could have done what he said in one of his earlier calls and turned himself in and went to prison and killed himself. Yep, that could have solved a lot of problems here. Mm-hmm. They never do. Mm-mm. So, that was my case. It's kind of a shorty. That's okay. Short is good. <laughs> We've actually had some pretty lengthy ones in the last... Okay, then this is perfect. Yeah, so it's nice to get, you know, a couple short ones in here and there. But that was very interesting, though. I can't wait to listen. Obviously, I can't listen while we're recording, but I can't wait to listen to this weepy-voiced... Asshole. Douchebag. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone should go do that, for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, on to some astrology. And you did get his place of birth, too, so that means I know. we've got a rising. No, we don't. No? We need birth time. Oh, damn it. Okay. Rising. Fuck. We've got the moon. Yeah. We've got most of it. Anywho, Paul Michael Stefani is our first Virgo. Virgo. And he's a terrible example if you are trying to use him to explain what a Virgo is to noobs. <laughs> so this is another struggle. Like. To, like, kind of figure out the astrology. So I'm just going to... We haven't had a Virgo yet, so just briefly, Virgo is another Earth sign. Mm-hmm. And it really is kind of the happy medium between the more uptight Capricorn and the Taurus, which kind of has more of a tendency to his laziness. Yeah. Yeah, we did talk a little bit about Virgo compatibility with in the Artist-Squire oh, yeah. case. So they are... A, you know, detail-oriented, you know, exactly. somewhat of a perfectionist, maybe not as in-depth as Capricorn is, but, you know, they're they're pretty um, focused. They can be extremely focused. Like I said, I think my Virgo rising is what gives me my spark <laughs> so that I'm not completely weighed down by this no-nonsense, business-oriented feelings are for suckers like Capricorn, Sun, and Moon that I'm dealing with. Okay. But yeah, in general, like you said, Capricorns are ambitious and they are more likely to want to be seen and recognized for their abilities mm-hmm. and usually have a lot of confidence in their abilities as well, whereas Virgos are more prone to anxiety, imposter syndrome, kind of overthinking everything and prefer to be of service to others. But a lot of the same characteristics like practical, logical, organized, those all apply. Mm-hmm. So this tendency towards being anxious and self-critical overthinkers just highlights the weakness that's inherent in a Virgo. So perhaps as an attempt to control their surroundings and reduce their anxiety as much as they can, they're also very organized, methodical, practical, not that interested in spontaneity. Mm -hmm. The ruling planet of Virgo is Mercury, which Mm -hmm. is the planet of communication. So, Virgos are often very good at being clear and succinct in their communication style, at least when it comes to practical, factual topics. Mm -hmm. They are way less comfortable expressing uh, emotions, partially because emotions are not always logical, so they don't fit into this tightly controlled life, which can lead some Virgos unable to accept their emotions or label them as bad or irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I have a Scorpio Venus, which is even worse. (laughs) But in order for a Virgo to be an active participant in a relationship, their partner has to provide them with tangible acts of love 
and have proven themselves to be trustworthy before the Virgo will feel safe to start revealing the parts of them that are messier than they would prefer. Sure. But the feelings are definitely there. And a Virgo can be a remarkably loyal and devoted partner and friend. Uh, so very little of this applies to Paul. <laughs> yeah, no. His life, to me, seemed far too chaotic for a Virgo to be comfortable in. Yeah. I guess one thing that does kind of stick out little tiny bit is Paul's weepy phone calls to the authorities. He's obviously an asshole, but there's... Also a tone in these phone calls of Paul struggling with his emotions and, like, not knowing what to do with them or himself. I don't think this was any kind of conscious thought on his part, for sure, but... Because we don't know why he made the calls, but... But if you struggle with emotions in your everyday life, then you have something that brings up some extreme emotions, right? You would, mm-hmm. you would struggle with that and not really know how to appropriately deal with it. Yeah. So that's the little tiny bit of astrology reach for the week. Um, <laughs> Sometimes it's all we got. <laughs> I know. We do what we got to do because he had, uh, I think, three to four planets in Virgo, too. And I was like, this guy's the least Virgo I've ever seen. <laughs> it takes all kinds to make the world go round unfortunately yes or fortunately i don't know i guess probably fortunately but we have some diversity uh in the uh signs of our killers now Mm-hmm. yep that's the story of paul michael stefani moving on to the astrology world for this week dun 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 yay so first up on april not april where are we on august <laughs> 9 <laughs> ah I wouldn't mind going back in time a little bit so I have some more time to finish this thing that I'm doing, but it's definitely August, folks, so... Well, the temperature in my my room that we're recording in right now tells me it's summer. (laughs) Oh, I'm feeling it. And August 9, Venus in Virgo will be in opposition to Neptune in Pisces. This is Venus in Virgo bringing this practical and realistic approach to a lot of things, which would contrast with this more dreamy, imaginative nature of Neptune in Pisces. So this aspect could bring confusion and disappointment in love, especially if our dreams are not matching up with reality. So this may be a good time to take a step back from our relationship and try to observe it logically and less emotionally and see no one will ever, you know, perfectly sync with your dream ideal of a person but I think it's important to stop and ask yourself at some points is your partner supporting you and your idea of comfort in a relationship or are you just spending your time wishing that they would do that and you're caught up in this fantasy that they're not going to provide for you I also did not do this on purpose but on August 11 Mercury interest Virgo (laughs) and I've already discussed this a little bit earlier but uh, Mercury will be in one of its ruling signs. Its other ruling sign is Gemini. BT Dubs. That's um, me. Yay! So that means that energies of communication, intellect, cleverness will all be at their peak. Mm-hmm. So for the next three weeks, you can expect communication to be organized, reliable, fact checked. Mercury's effect on Virgo can also be seen in the ability to quickly see the pros and cons of a situation and just cut through the noise to get to the real meat of the issue. Yeah. And so all the signs can use this time to do a little bit of 
I don't know, August cleaning of themselves. <laughs> so follow the Virgos and maybe reorganize your space, schedule your activities in a reasonable manner and instead of one that might make you feel overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And since communication energy is high and strong right now, it's also a good time to let other people know who you are, what you want, and what you can do. Yeah. And then during this time of high energy and communication, people are more likely to listen and you're more likely to get your point across. Okay. So that's what I got. Well, I was also going to add that during this time, you know, your train of thought is a little bit more streamlined and you're going to be more attentive and and more focused. And this is a really good time for all things that are work related because you can be productive as fuck. And able to handle your your stuff like ain't no thing. No probs. Yeah. And then also on August 11th, Venus in Virgo will be trine with Pluto in Capricorn. And trines are always a good thing. Trines! This aspect will add an intensity and a passion into our relationships and things that bring us joy or satisfaction in our everyday life. So it may be a good day for some sexy time with your partner. It may be a good time to crank up the music. It may be a good time to be creative or pursue creativity. So like if you've been wanting a new tattoo august 11th might be a good day to take care of that so what an idea yeah and that's all i have for astrology well that's three different things happening this week so yeah fair enough you got got things um (laughs) like i said we're we're filling in for sarah here so we're doing the best we can trying And this is kind of a shorty, so you can listen to this and then get right back into those productive Virgo vibes and get back to work or whatever you you were doing before you listened to us. You got shit to do. (laughs) We all got shit to do. We need to do it. Okay, well, that's that. While you're getting your shit done in a very focused and productive manner, you can shoot us an email or connect with us on twitter at true trying on instagram at true crime trying facebook we're at tct podcast you can check out our website at www.truecrimetrying.com we do have an our second dog submission my brother got a new puppy her name is leia we'll get leia's Papagraph. Papagraph up on our TCT pet family. What do we call it? TCT. Murder mittens. Murder mittens. Although the snake can't wear mittens, but. You could make him a sweater. You could just wear like a, yeah, just make him a tube. Yeah, like a sweater. Stick him in the tube. (laughs) Sweater Sweater tube. tube. (laughs) (laughs) He's really cool though. So if you haven't, um, haven't checked that out, definitely do. And you know, if you do want to connect with us directly, please feel free to hit us up at truecrimetrying at gmail.com. If you do, I will send you a sticker. So bribery little bit. is alive. It is. Hit us up. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, don't you know, <laughs> D.H. Lawrence, I can only, that's the only thing I could do in a Minnesota accent, but I love don't it. you know, 
that D.H. Lawrence once said that we should not feel ashamed of flirting with the Zodiac, as the Zodiac is well worth flirting with. Unless it's the Zodiac Killer. Oh, oof. Yeah. Oof. Oof. Boom. Oof. Music for our podcast was handcrafted by the talented and creative minds of Mike Warren and Pete Ortega. Our artwork was imagined and skillfully designed by the lovely Sarah Guest. As for production, well, they call me post-production. Show notes are available upon request. Just email truecrimetrine at gmail.com. Join us again next week for another tantalizing episode.